Well, welcome everybody to our Sunday night teaching time. We're in a series on the parables. Lessons from Heaven for Life on Earth. This is part 11. And a really strange parable that we're going to be looking at tonight. I'm calling it Shrewdness and the Kingdom of God. We're in Luke 16. It's a little longer. Luke 16, 13 verses. Get a Bible. Let's study this together, church. 16.1. He, that's Jesus, also said to his disciples. Now, let me just say again, this is all these parables are talking about how the kingdom of God works. And this parable has some surprising truths that Jesus wants to strike home into his disciples about how the kingdom of God works in our lives. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So the manager was wasting the master's possessions. Verse 2. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now listen to this, verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, kind of on the sly, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Seven. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write down 80. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Get that. Jesus is speaking now. Parable's over. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Nine, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What's that all about? 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. We know these words. We don't usually link them with the parable the way Jesus did. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You, you just, you cannot serve you cannot serve God and money. What a story. Imagine Jesus telling this edgy story of a sleazy, immoral servant. Imagine him starting yet another story using his favorite predictable pattern of a master and a servant. Most of Jesus' parables involve a master and a servant in some way. The disciples 
They've heard these ideas before as Jesus starts. The servant is corrupt. He swindles his master out of payment. He was due from his tenants. The servant, he feathers his own nest with his master's wealth. The servant kind of plays the middleman and he siphons off his master's profit, making himself appear generous, robbing the master of the loyalty and appreciation of the tenants. And now the story is coming to an end. And you can, you can just imagine the disciples, they're listening to another story about a master and a wicked servant. And they've heard this before, and they can see the end coming. They've seen what had happened to wicked servants in all sorts of Jesus parables, two-thirds of them. They could, they, could, they could see the end coming, and they could almost smell the smoke, and they could hear the gnashing of teeth. That's what was coming, only it didn't. His, his story takes a different direction. Look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I mean, the disciples, they must have just glanced around at each other in reaction. The master commended the dishonest manager? What in the world was this all about? How could a holy Jesus turn their moral world upside down with this parable? Truthfully, there is no moral earthquake in this story. The holiness of Jesus remains sound. Because Jesus never praised the manager's righteousness or his integrity. So so our Lord knew about the secret activities of the unjust manager, in spite of all his shrewdness. This unjust manager, he only appeared to get away with his actions for a brief slice of time. But, but there were still words of praise for this fast-thinking crook. And that's the cutting edge of the parable. He wasn't moral. He wasn't good, but he was shrewd. And, and it's right at this point that the parable has application to all disciples. Those disciples, we, the disciples here, as you're listening to this, the whole point of the parable really revolves around that eighth verse. It's key. Luke 16, 8, 8b, the last part of the verse. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So, so, so Jesus is saying that there are, right now, two classes of people on planet Earth. There still are. Only two classes. There are the children of this age, and there are the children of the light. The children of this age, the Bible says they're bound in sin, they're bound in darkness, they live under the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. They live under the wrath of God. The Bible says they're condemned already. That's in John 3.18. You can read it. Then there are children of the light. That's the other group, Christians. 
The name says it all. They aren't in darkness anymore. They know the truth about heaven and hell. They know the truth about sin and judgment, grace and redemption. They know the blessing of peace with God, the promise of heaven. They are children of the light. So far, so good. But for all of that, Jesus says, there is frequently, maybe usually, there's a huge contradiction in the outward life of the church in this world. Jesus says there's a huge flaw that can betray the church's witness and diminish the Christian's life in this dark world. Here's the problem. Jesus says the church doesn't always live consistently with her beliefs, with her profession. More than that, notice Jesus says the world does. The world lives consistently with its system. It's the children of the light who don't. They frequently say one thing and they live for something else. And and to prove this single point, just one point, Jesus tells this story of the wicked but shrewd manager. I have three thoughts I want to leave with you. Let's go quick. One, the crooked manager was a model of realism. It's in the first four verses. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him to him and said, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Now notice verse three, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So here's this manager. He's, he's, he's a realist. He knows he can't remain in his current situation forever. He faces that. He's been cooking the books for quite a while, but his employment was coming to an end. Now, true... Nothing he did was right, but at least this much, Jesus says, is an example. He knew his time was limited. That's important. I mean, there's something about a deadline that focuses energy. Time constraints. When they're understood, they give birth to urgency in both good and wicked endeavors. And this manager knew he didn't have the luxury of just leisurely sort of going about his business as usual. That's in verses 5 and 6. So come summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, quickly, write 50. Notice those words, sit down quickly. It's, it's like someone committing a finely timed bank heist or someone fleeing a security guard or prisoners escaping over the wall. Now, all those activities are wicked, but in each one, time is of the essence. That's Jesus' point. In fact, that's why Jesus picked a wicked 
underhanded manager to star in this story. If anybody has to work fast, it's a crook. That's the whole point. Time is of the essence. This unscrupulous man, he worked his plan, he knew what he needed to do, and he got at it really fast. What is Jesus trying to tell us? Well, some priorities, if they're going to be real priorities, they have to be forced. Some things must be done quickly or they're not going to get done at all. Some things can't be done later on. So like this crooked manager, here's where we're alike. We Christians, we, we, we need this sense of deadline if we're to function well in this world as children of the light. We don't have forever. Oh, I know. Certainly we're called to a life of joy and peace, both of which are real. But we're not called to a life of just leisure. The, the Christian life, it's an active life. It's not, it's not mere activism. I don't mean that. But it's not dreamy. It's not just emotional. It's not mystical. It's, it's focused. It's engaged. It's energetic. It's busy. It's urgent. Here's how Jesus planned his whole life within the framework of some really pressing time constraints. In John 9, verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. What a wonderful verse. While it is day. See, what a great kingdom outlook. Each day, each day must be compressed, forced into kingdom service. Must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Those words describe a person who felt confined by borders, who, who, knew, who knew each day had to be stuffed with what's important. That's what the shrewd manager did. And that's why Jesus told the story this way. He did nothing else right. No one says he was right. But he used his present opportunity urgently and quickly. And Jesus praised him for it. Okay, point number two. This crooked manager, he used every available means to prepare for his inevitable future. I see that in verses 4 through 7. This crooked manager says, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from my management, he knows that's coming, people may receive me into their houses. And so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? Well, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Then he said, take your bill, write 80. Now, obviously, we know everything this guy's doing, it's immoral. But he's not being praised for his ethics. He's being praised for his industry. He used everything he could get his hands on with only one goal in mind. He was getting ready for the inevitable. 
He had all of his energies forced in one direction with one goal. That's why Jesus puts the spotlight on him. Apparently, we need that example. The children, this is the whole point. The children of this age, this wicked, materialistic, self-centered age, the children of this age, they work their system. That's Jesus' point. You can see it every day of the week. They rise up early. They stay up late. They skip vacations. They want the business to grow. They borrow all the monies they can get. They spend a fortune on self-gratification. They want a bigger house. They'll move their family to afford it. They'll multiply the number of wage earners to pay for it. They want personal pleasure. They will borrow more money to buy the cottage, the boat, the car, the designer clothes. Jesus said, look at the people of this age. That's what they do. They work their system. In fact, they work their system better than the children of the light work their system. That's what this parable is all about. Have you noticed it? Have you ever noticed that virtually no obstacle will stop the person on his mission to climb the economic ladder? Every challenge can be overcome. Setbacks are just temporary. Problems are just an incentive to a new angle of attack. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And yet that very same person can't be bothered with his Bible because it's too hard to understand. What's going on here? The person who can climb Everest in the business world can't figure out how to get up in time for church on Sunday. The children of this age, the child of this age, though he fall a hundred times in his quest for success, he will keep at it with renewed courage and determination. Nothing deters him. Every obstacle is a challenge. But if the sermon's too long on Sunday, he just can't handle it. That's what this parable's about. The children of this world, the children of this age, the unsaved, they know how to use all their talents, all their energies to work their system. They attach more zeal to their puny little pursuits than the children of light do in pressing into the kingdom of God. That's the rebuke in this parable. Point number three. Jesus challenges his disciples with concrete decisions to express commitment in their daily use of time and resources. Time and resources. I look at my own Christian life. There are truths that I embrace generally, but sometimes resist specifically. Embrace them generally, agree with them, but resist them when they get specific. My my mom used to make us eat the broccoli that we left on the side of our plate. And that's what Jesus is doing in his closing remarks of this passage of scripture. 
I want to look at them and then draw a few lessons out of them. Luke 16, 9 to 13 now is where we're reading. 9 to 13. And this moves into now the wrap-up of the parable and then Jesus' very specific teaching directly to his disciples. Not parable, but teaching. 16, 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Interesting. Verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. It's like seed either way. 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Here's what you can't do. You can't serve God and money. Here are the closing thoughts I want to leave out of those verses. A, just verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Complicated words, but here's the life lesson. Everything, everything of this world is going to fail you. Everything in this world is going to turn to dust and it's going to leave you empty-handed. So the only thing worth your best efforts is the kingdom, eternity, eternal habitations is what it's called in that verse. That's where you should put your energy. B, verses 10 to 12, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Here's what I think Jesus is saying here. A successful Christian life isn't found where most people look. So, So most Christians spend far too much time dreaming about some some big spiritual moment. The big grand events, that's what Jesus is saying here. Those aren't the ones that make you and me who we are spiritually. If you've been faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. If you've been unfaithful in little, you'll be unfaithful in much. So so what Jesus is saying is the big grand events aren't the ones that make you who you are spiritually. Character happens when you're not looking. Character is formed when you're not really thinking about it. The kingdom of God is formed within you by a string of little things done faithfully and attentively. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Don't dream. Be faithful in the little things. Also, in a way that's almost too close for comfort, heavenly spirituality has an intensely material side to it. I hope you noticed. 
It isn't just thinking lofty thoughts. It's about how you spend your money and how you use your time. I get that in 11 and 12. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? There's a material side to spiritual living. It has to do with, in this world, unrighteous wealth. That's what talking about the, the material wealth we work with in this earthly system. You have to be faithful with that in the kingdom. C, wrapping up. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, you cannot serve God and money. I think Bob Dylan was right in that famous song, It Might Be the Devil and It Might Be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. One way or another, you got to serve somebody. To use Jesus' One term, everyone will be devoted to one kingdom or the other. Nobody remains neutral. So if you don't, if you don't fix personal devotion to the one, you will automatically become devoted to the other. Devotion is something or someone, devotion to something or someone, it's the default direction of every life. That's what Jesus is saying. So, so this means, Only uh, absolute, concentrated devotion to Jesus is a safe commitment. Just spend some time with me digesting the words of that 13th verse as we close, okay? 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. I find myself, I find myself when I, when I let my mind soak up those words, I find myself almost haunted by that verse. I really do. Sometimes I wish I could stop thinking about those words because I, I know they press me farther than I'm usually willing to go in devotion to the Lord. Think about this with me, okay? Jesus addresses those words. That 13th verse, he addresses those words to people who do claim to be devoted to him. So the very first verse of this chapter sets the whole teaching as being directed to the disciples. That, that's what I find so troubling. This whole 13th verse about trying to serve two masters, it isn't, it isn't directed to people who reject Jesus. It isn't directed to the people of this world. It's directed to people who acknowledge Jesus as master, but try to serve someone else. See, the people in this world, they they don't even pretend to love Jesus. It's not a problem for them. They're serving one master. Devotedly, that's the point Jesus is making. They serve their master more devotedly than the children of the light serve theirs. That's the whole point of that eighth verse. 
So here in verse 13, look carefully at that warning. What no person can do is serve two masters. That's what this verse cautions against. The children of this age, they don't try to serve two masters. And that's why Jesus chooses a crooked manager rather than a righteous one. This guy is absolutely consistent with the kingdom he's living in. He's serving it faithfully. It's the, it's the children of the light that Jesus is worried about. Children of the light, they're the only ones who can possibly try to serve two masters. That's the danger Jesus sees. He looks into the faces of his disciples. He looks into the faces of people trying to follow him. And he tells this story. They aren't denying their master. Jesus knows that. But he wants to impress on his disciples what serving him as master really means. And what it means is choosing Jesus means unchoosing everything else, consciously unchoosing everything else. Choosing Jesus isn't hard. It's the forsaking of everything else that's hard. Singing worship choruses with upraised hands and closed eyes, that's not hard. Unchoosing the things of this world is extremely challenging. And so this parable, boy, I don't know, it's, it's addressed to people like me, and it tells me what I don't want to hear. It tells me that pressing into the kingdom of God is as much about unchoosing the world as it is about choosing Jesus. It has as much to do with my spending habits as it does my worship courses. It's as much about my hobbies as my Bible memorization. It's about as much uh, 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 my entertainment and the things I watch as it is my church attendance. So here's the bottom line. If you want a summary of this whole parable in modern day terms, here it is. As a dearly loved child of God, one who is redeemed from this fallen world, destined for an eternal habitation and reward with only a limited amount of time and energy at your disposal, put more energy into building God's eternal kingdom than Bill Gates puts into Microsoft. Until I do that, I don't know that I love Jesus as much as I think. The children of this world, Jesus says, they work their system energetically. Everything's focused in one direction, like this unjust manager. He's not righteous, but he's focused, and he's busy, and he knows where he's going with his life, and he puts everything into it. Now, Jesus says, the children of the light, they need to be as wise in their kingdom as the children of this world are in theirs. And that is where you find the kingdom becomes like buried treasure. There's a a joy that it produces when it's embraced with that kind of passion. That's an edgy parable. I'm glad we got a chance to study it together. Let's pray.
some of your teachings are soothing. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some of your parables are biting to believers. And I pray that we will be full-orbed in our discipleship, in our walk with you, Jesus. May people see the same passion for your kingdom in our lives that they see in their passion for the world that they serve. May, may our devotion to Jesus glow in the dark. Bless our church. Keep us in your hand. Keep us faithful in following you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Remember, the four-week social media spiritual blessing principle, okay? Love one another. Join us for our prayer time.